recently read an article about a woman named uh, Florence Chadwick. The article was entitled, uh, So Close But Yet So Far. And it's the story of this woman who was uh, 34 years old in 1952, and she attempted to become the first woman to swim a 20, uh, 20 miles across the Catalina uh, Channel from Catalina Island to Palos Verde on the California coast. And this woman set out to break this record, and she was dedicated. She swam for over 15 hours uh, with a boat of family members next to her. And she really wanted to, to reach uh, the, this, the, the Palos Verde on the California coast. And she had trained very hard to do so. But the day in which she was swimming was a really hard day weather-wise. It was ice cold and there were sharks in the water. In fact, there were members in the boat next to her that were shooting at the waters, trying to distract the sharks from disrupting her as she swam. But there's another issue. There's a deep, dark fog that day. And as she swam about 15 hours in and 55 minutes, she was overcome with disappointment because she could not see. She could not see arriving to the coastline. So she gave up. And upon getting into the boat, she was told that she was just a mile away from shore. And as I read that story, I kind of thought about my life and I thought about you and I thought about this sermon for this week. And I thought about how easy it is for us to get discouraged because of fog and how some of us, like this woman, we have tried to to discipline ourselves, to grow in certain areas of our faith and our walk with Christ. But, But this fog is there. And this fall kind of just constantly discourages us. It constantly reminds us of what we're not and how we fall short. And for some of us, this fall has discouraged us to the point that we've kind of just tapped out. And we're in, in coast mode. On the outside, it looks like we're pursuing Christ. It looks like we're putting our best foot forward. But really, we've given up because we are discouraged. We just don't see a way in which to grow any further. And like Florence, you are kind of jumping back in the boat with disappointment. Well, today we're going to continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're specifically specifically looking at the characteristic of self-control. And I pray that this sermon would encourage you to continue through the power of Christ and in Christ to swim on. I pray that it will encourage you to, to not allow the fall to disappoint you. Now, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we want to emphasize that that it takes a while for fruit to develop. It takes a while for trees to grow and for fruit on that tree to develop. And in the same way, whatever characteristic that we've talked about thus far, it takes a while. It takes a lifetime, really, for it to develop in a way that that maybe even is is encouraging to us. So uh, if you can stand to your feet, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 27 today, and we're going to look at this element this characteristic, self-control in the life of Jesus. Then we're going to look at our own lives and see not only why we need it, but how we can continue to cultivate it. And today we're going to read verse 11 through 14, though we will kind of work our way through the story. Verse 11 reads, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
You have said so, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked them, do you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in Galatians chapter five, verse 19 through 21, uh, the apostle Paul in talking about uh, the fruit of the spirit, he kind of gives us a list of things um, in which are the opposite of self-control. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Witchcraft is kind of this, this controlling spirit. Uh, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So all of these acts of the flesh really are a result of a lack of self-control. And then goes and tells us that the evidence of the spirit, the evidence that God is at work in a believer, the evidence that one is abiding in Christ is the fact, uh, one of the characteristics is the fact that self-control is evidence. So what is, what is self-control? When well, the Greek, Paul mentions self-control, and the word there is, is kratos, which is uh, where we get the English word uh, kratic from, right? Like democratic, which means to be people ruled or for the people to have power. Theocratic, which means God power, God rule. Autocratic, which means self-ruled or self-power. In essence, self-control is strength from within to master our passions. And perhaps Jerry Bridges has the best definition of self-control when he defines it this way. Self-control is the exercise of inner strength that enables us to do, to think, and to say things that are pleasing to God. It is the exercise of inner strength that enables us to do, to think, and to say things that are pleasing to God. Now, a lot of you all right now are probably feeling just the weight of what's about to come for the next 25 minutes. Because all of us has areas in our life that we need to grow in with self-control. All of us should be able to think and look at our own lives and say, you know what? I need to grow in my thought life. I need to grow in, in purity. I need to grow in the way in which I handle adversity. I need to grow in, in, in the way in which I, I, I love. I need to grow in my impulses in, in this area or that area. And as we are thinking that, I just want to remind you again that the developing fruit is a growing process. And I want to speak maybe to your conscience that seeks to condemn you by early on in sermon, just by, by, by calling you to remember the gospel. But then it's others of us who may be listening to this in a very moralistic perspective, because in your mind, you, are, you demonstrate great self-control. You are, are, are very uh, good at, at being moral and checking off lists and following through with uh, the things that you maybe say that you want to follow through. And even in that aspect, I want to call you to see yourself from a gospel lens and to remind you that, that pride also is sin. 
And that in being prideful and even listening to this through that lens of looking at everyone else around you who may not have self-control, that, that you yourself are guilty. And I want to encourage you to run to Jesus in the midst of that. The Apostle Paul tells us that the self-control is, is, is a pursuit. Discipline, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. We we want to grow in self-control so that we can become more godly, so that we can continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. But why? Well, the first reason why is because we want to realize the, the impact of self-control. The impact of self-control. When we display self-control in our life, it impacts others. And when we don't display self-control in our lives, it impacts others. And that's what we see in this text that we just read. Uh, this, is the, this is Jesus standing before the governor Pilate. And he's standing before Pilate and he's facing all of these uh, accusations. And I love how Matthew's uh, gospel kind of slows down at this point. I love how the speed of which the gospel narratives are go is, is, is very action-oriented. Uh, some stories, you have more details than others, but when you get to Jesus' Passion Week, when you get to Jesus standing uh, before his accusers, it slows down, and you begin uh, to, to get into more detailed conversations. And the reason why I believe that's important is because this is the climax of the gospel stories. Uh, Christ is about to be crucified. Jesus is about to do what he was born to do. He was born to die. And he died only to rise again so that those who were spiritually dead can have life. And so it's almost as if the author is saying every word counts. But we see in this text that Jesus is going to be few of words. Pilate is going to ask Jesus a very political question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is going to give a very short answer. You have said so. He's going to be ambiguous. Why? Because Jesus is not concerned about getting into a political discussion. He's not concerned about making an argument on whether or not he's the king of the Jews. Jesus is a savior. That's why in Matthew 22, we see the religious leaders asking Jesus, is he the son of man? And there Jesus responds more robustly. And he ultimately tells them, hey, you will see the son of man sitting on the right-hand side of the father. And why does Jesus answer them with, with, with a directness, but he's more ambiguous when talking to Pilate is because Jesus is the son of God and he wants to make sure that everybody understands that he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter seven, that there will be one sitting on the right hand side of God in all power. But here before Pilate, Jesus is going to show an amazing amount of control an amazing amount of inner strength. He's going to please the Father as he suffers. And it's going to have a huge impact on the governor. Verse 14, but Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. What were they charging him with? Well, they were charging him with subverting the nation. They were charging him with opposing the, the payment of taxes to Caesar. They, was, they were charging him with claims to, that, that he was a true king, that he was a true Caesar. And yet the text says that Jesus showed self-control. He did not respond to those accusations. And it amazed Pilate. 
Pilate was in awe. How in the world are you coming under this type of criticism? How in the world are you coming under this type of, of assault and you are not pushing back? You're not defending yourself, but you're just standing here. In the same way, when we are put in different situations, we want to remind ourselves that, that people are watching and that the, the way in which we respond, it, it actually impacts others. In Titus chapter 2, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, simply encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And everything set them an example doing what is good. So, so he's dealing here with Titus He's saying, make sure you encourage the the young men to live self-control. And he says in the same way, make sure you set an example for them. He's saying your self-control impacts other people in the body of Christ. And then he goes on in that same verse, he says, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. And then he goes on and he's talking about those who are, are not walking in step with the gospel. He says, you want to have self-control. You want to train the young men in your congregation to have self-control because there's a watching world. There are people who are opposed to Jesus Christ. So what is he doing? He's saying self-control impacts two groups of people. Number one, impacts the body of Christ. And number two, it impacts those who are watching. The reason we want to continue to cultivate the fruit of self-control is as, as a church, we want to make sure that we are still continuing to follow Jesus in a way that diminishes and that, that discourages apathy. There, 75% of the churches that are here in America are dying or plateaued. And I believe the reason that is, is because we have, we have lost focus. And we have stopped striving together to discipline ourselves in a way that would encourage and to spur others on. And as the body of Christ, we have to be very leery of of just kind of going through the motions and and living a Christian life that is is void of, of, of seeking to be an inspiration to those around us. And we want to be encouraging each other to to ask each other, to peer into each other's heart, to see if Christ's mission and if his grace is is still at the forefront of our mind. We want to constantly be reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. That even though we may not be where we want to be in him, we certainly are not what we used to be. And that God has done a mighty work in our heart and that he wants to continue to do a work in our lives and in our hearts. But so often churches become so apathetic. And rather than peering into each other's personal lives, rather than asking each other, how's the Lord been speaking to you through his word, rather than checking on each other's prayer practice to see if we are abiding in Christ, rather than than seeking and challenging us together as a a church to to fast and to, to practice the spiritual disciplines, our conversations become about other things. Maybe they become about the church service and whether or not the music was good or whether or not the preacher was on that day. Or maybe they become about uh, where we're vacationing 
living or what we're doing with our life or how work is going, but we slowly begin to to lose sight on the fact that God has saved us, not so that we can sit comfortable and create lives in which we can just simply enjoy without sacrifice, but he has saved us by grace from hell. He has snatched us back from the pit of hell and from a sentence of death. He has given us life and raised us together with Christ Jesus so that we can remember what he's done in our life and pursue others to follow this Jesus. But that takes intentionality, and we have to remind ourselves that our lives impact others. Just as Jesus' self-control impacted Pilate. We see the second thing we want to look at is is the enemies to self-control. The enemies to self-control. And the reason why this is important to identify these enemies is these are the things that discourages us to to grow in the faith, to continue to, to put on and to put off. This is a common language in, in, in Paul's writings, put off the old man and put on Christ, right? Colossians 3, take off the old man and then put on Christ. But there are enemies that seek to, that seek to hinder us from growing. And there's three enemies. The first enemy is situations. The second enemy is our story. And the third is, is self, our situation. We've been talking a lot about this series about that acronym HALT, that we tend uh, to, to not be in step with the Spirit when we're put in situations in which we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, uh, that we tend not to have self-control when those things are present. So for me, I know that the Scripture uh, has much to speak about my body being the temple of the Lord. Scripture has much to, to, to speak against gluttony. But we all know that it is hard to, uh, to, to practice self-control, especially when those things are present. It's hard after a long, hard day of work to come home and then to see that my wife has made a healthy meal. <laughs> it's hard, right? My feelings, my emotions, my, my body begins to react like, no, I want something with sugar and with cheese. I'm making some of y'all hungry. I know I am. Uh-huh. All right, that's hard. To not eat and then say, I've got to make a quick run and then go get something that's greasy that's going to satisfy me, right? Uh, but, but, but so we have those enemies. We have those situations where uh, that's present. But also we have stories and we're complex beings. We've been impacted by our upbringing. We're impacted socially. We're, we're, we're impacted by all these different things. And sometimes the the fact that we haven't processed our story, the fact that we still are, are experiencing pain from, from years before, it, it sometimes works against us disciplining ourselves in certain areas. And that can be an enemy to, to self-control. But ultimately, an enemy to self-control is, is self. The enemy to self-control is self, and that's, that's what we see in this text. In verse 17 we see that Pilate gathers a crowd and he has the power to exonerate one of two men, one who is Barabbas, the other who is Jesus. But look what verse 18 says, that Pilate says. He says, for he knew it 
was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. He knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And then as we continue, we read in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. So here we have two groups. We have Pilate, and also we have the religious leaders who are egging on the crowd to have Christ crucified. And both of them are in sin here. And the reason both of them are in sin is because both of them are acting out of self-interest. He says, hey, these religious leaders, they brought Jesus before me out of self-interest. The reason that Jesus is before me is because they're jealous. Their power is at stake. Their, their preaching is at stake. Jesus is preaching this message of good news. They are preaching this message of the law. They are losing control. They are losing power. So what do they want? They want They want Jesus to be crucified. Let's get rid of him, and everything goes back to normal. We keep our jobs. But essentially, Pilate is doing the same thing. The reason that he does not practice self-control, the reason that he doesn't come into the situation and exonerate a Jesus who he knows um, has really done no wrong is because he wants to stay in power, because he wants to stay in control, because he wants the Jewish people, to come under his governorship in a way that would make his life easy. This is the heart of man. And this is my problem when I don't have self-control. And this is your problem when you don't have self-control. Many times it it comes back to self-preservation. Many times it comes back to an identity issue. Many times it comes back to us not trusting in what God has said about us, us not finding our identity in Christ, but rather we are finding our identity in what other people think about us. So then we start down this downward progression because we have this fear of man or because we want to be in control. We, We give up on pursuing holiness because we're down and we're down because we're not sure if such and such person likes us. Or we're, we're down because we're not sure. It's not going well at my job. And if I lose my job, then I lose my livelihood. And rather than just saying, I'm just going to be a faithful worker and I'm going to continue to work as unto the Lord, knowing that he is sovereign and that ultimately he controls my income and he controls my family well-being. We, we under pressure, we balk and then we run to to idols. Then we find escape in Southern comfort, in Hennessy, let me contextualize, in Bourbon, we're in Louisville. We, we find comfort in, in vegging out on Netflix and suddenly we're slothful. We found comfort in responding to people in rage in order to protect our own identity. We find comfort in pornography, believing the lie that delight is found in the things that God has said will kill us. It's the same thing that happens in a garden with Adam and Eve. They're delighting in God. They're enjoying God. And, and Satan comes and he, he, he casts doubt 
In their mind, he questions God's goodness for them. They begin to look at this this tree that God said was off lemon, and they see that the fruit is is good to the eyes. And they, they, they believe the lie that the reason that God doesn't want them to eat of this tree is because he is somehow withholding goodness from them. He, he, he knows that they'll be just as knowledgeable as he. And they, they bite that fruit seeking delight, seeking fulfillment out of something that could never bring ultimate delight. And in the same way, we, we run to broken cisterns and we lack self-control. Believe in a lie that perhaps we're smarter than God or that God really is not for us. But what's the key to self-control? I mean, all of us in some way is there, but how do we grow in self-control? How do we cultivate it? How do we come uh, 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 back and, and, and respond when we're put in, in situations that, that will cause us to sin or or when our story and the pain comes up that, that seeks to distract us and the, to, to tempt us to believe saying lies, how do we, re, how do we grow? Well, first, we, we grow by just acknowledging that, that it's hard. And if the only way to grow in true self-control is through the empower of the Holy Spirit, and that we need God's spirit to help us to truly grow in self-control. And I'm not talking about just behavior modification. Someone who doesn't know Jesus can modify their behavior. There are plenty of my non-Christian friends who are more disciplined in certain areas of their life than I am. Now, the reason that's not biblical self-control is because biblical self-control is not rooted Ultimately, in self, biblical self-control is rooted in the glory of God. We seek to grow in self-control, not so that self would be glorified, not so that people would look at us and say, look how awesome you are. Look at how great of a philanthropist you are. You show so much self-control towards in stewardship. Look how much self-control you have in, in parenting your kids in a gospel way. No, no, when we pursue those things and do those things, it's not to magnify us. Ultimately, our pursuit is to magnify God. We want to see Jesus made famous. We want to see Christ exalted. We want to see the nations be glad. We want to see strongholds broken. We want people to look at us and say that there's something different about him. And it's not him. It's something, it's something deeper, something better. It's, a, it's, it's something that is, that is rooted in a way that brings joy. So how, what is that? How do we grow in self-control? Well, we grow in self-control by, by first recognizing that self-control is the work of grace. It's God's grace that enables us to grow. It's God's grace that enables us to move on and that humbles us because it keeps us from being pride when we have victory. Well, why can't you just be quiet when someone is falsely accusing you? I do it. I mean, four years ago, my coworker said that I stole a pen that I did not take and I did not get defensive. Why are you so defensive? Right? <laughs> No, we, we recognize 
the grace of God at, at work in us. And then when we, our growth seems to be slower than we want, rather than self-deprecation and rather than getting disappointed to the point that we now are distracted, we can say, God, I praise you for your grace that you care more about my sanctification. You care more about me looking like Jesus than I do. And that even in this area, even though I want you to take this thorn from me, even though this is a, still a, a toil and a struggle, I know that your grace is sufficient for me. Somebody needs to hear that. Some, some of your struggles, some of that, those areas in your life that, that's hard, that God has maybe not relieved from you at this point, is because God has anointed that struggle so that you can continue to come back to him. Not that sin. But that struggle. I'm not saying God has anointed you to uh, and, 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 and grace you so that you have that thorn in your flesh so that you can continue to sin. No, God does not tempt us to sin. God wants you to be victorious over that sin. But perhaps God has allowed that issue in your life to linger so that you can stay in a place of desperation. So that you can stay on your knees. So that you can stay in your word. So that you can remember that that victory does not come in your own might, but it comes through the one who is mightier than you. The grace of God has appeared, Paul wrote, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. Is the grace of God that when Christ appears, Christ begins to become our personal trainer. The Holy Spirit begins to become our personal trainer. And those ungodly passions that we once had, that, that desire to, to sin that we once had, it be, we begin to grow in fighting sin, and that desire begins to diminish is he trains us to renounce ungodliness. For some of us, certain things happen when we, when we came to faith right away. For others, those things have kind of, certain things have kind of lingered along for years. But it's God who is training us. But another key to growing in self-control is understanding that self-control requires mind control. Self-control requires Mind control. Now, when I talk about mind control, I'm not talking about the mind control in the movie, Now You See Me. Have you seen Now You See Me? All right. That's this movie about magic and magicians, and one guy has this power to, like, do mind control. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I talk about mind control. I talk about this, this, these biblical principles that we see uh, throughout the Bible on working to win the battle of our mind. Many times we are defeated and we don't grow in self-control because we're focusing more on the end action or result than on how we ended up there. And so mind control is understanding this, that if we sow a thought, we're going to reap a word. And if we sow a word, more than likely we're going to end up reaping an action. And if we sow an action, we're going to probably end up reaping a habit. And if we sow a habit, we're going to end up reaping a lifestyle. 
The reason why many times we're defeated is because rather than take our mind, as Paul says, pull every thought captive, we allow those thoughts to ruminate in our mind. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life. That's what Paul tells us, set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on this earth. That's why he tells whatever you think about, think about these things, the things that are pure, the things that are lovely, the things that are holy. What is he saying? He's saying mind control. Self-control is deeply rooted in mind control. When Satan tempts you with a thought, it's taking that thought back to Jesus. That's why not only just reading the word, but meditating on the word is so important. Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly, not poorly, richly. In that passage, he's talking about taking off these old habits the old things that weigh you down and putting on these new characteristics, these new habits. He said the way you do that is to, is to let the word of God dwell in you richly. Well, Psalm 119 says, I have hidden thy word in my heart. Why? So that I won't sin against you. I had a friend share with me about a, a deep struggle that he had for years. He said that the only way that he overcame that was by memorizing scripture. And that when, when the thoughts and the temptation came back to, to, to go into this, this way of, of struggling in life, that what he did is he, he learned to quote verses in the Bible back to himself, and it eventually he found freedom and began to grow. What about you? Have you identified areas in your life where you are falling habitually? The areas of your life where you are just hopeless and you just say, you know what? This is just me. This is just going to be my struggle. God is never going to free me from it. I'm just going to give all the way in. I'm not going to let anybody else know about my struggle. I'm going to let people know about my self-control issue. This is just me. Everybody has it. This is my issue and I'm going to give up. But I'm telling you that Satan is sapping you of spiritual vitality. Satan is undermining God's word by telling you that you are a slave to sin, by telling that your pain and your story and these situations that you are in, that, that it's okay to give into the flesh. While, while James says, no, that is, Satan's, that is what Satan wants you to believe. He tempts you with your own desires and to, to, to lead you astray so that he can pounce on you and bring death. Sin does not decrease. It only increases. It only gets worse. It only be, leads you to more bondage. It, it binds, it blinds, and then it grinds. But Christ has come to set you free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Don't let the fog discourage you. You fall, get back up, run to Jesus, confess your sin, walk with some brothers and sisters in Christ, and keep moving forward. Let the Holy Spirit water the word in you, and before you know it, you will become stronger. You may not be where you want to be, but you'll look back and say, well, I'm not what I used to be. Well, I once delighted in that. Now I don't delight in it. I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do, but I am pressing towards the mark of the high calling. And I'm doing it with joy, knowing that there is no condemnation 
in Christ Jesus. Finally, self-control requires certain attitude, attitude of a great athlete. Kobe Bryant read an article about him and how he went on vacation to Disney World. And how his wife said, listen, when we're on vacation, I need you to be, I need you to be here. Nine o'clock every day we're leaving where we're living and we are going out to Disney World. And I need you to be, I need you to be here. It's not about basketball, it's about family. Kobe thought to himself, he said, okay, I can do that, but I can't lose a week of training. So what did Kobe do? He found a, a physical trainer that worked with professional athletes. And every morning he got up at 4 a.m., drove an hour away, worked out for two and a half, three hours, then drove an hour back to be ready at 9 a.m. for his family. Why? Because Kobe loved winning. Because Kobe was living for that trophy and that acclaim. And I remember reading that story and just being convicted. Because I began to think about, like, that basketball didn't die for Kobe. Like, basketball didn't rise for Kobe. But Jesus died for me. He defeated death. He rose on the third day. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father pleading for me every day. He is for me. I am perfectly loved in him. He gives me his identity. He takes on himself my sin. But yet sometimes I don't discipline myself into godliness because it's hard. It's hard. Y'all know y'all be wanting to throw a little fit sometimes too. Like, oh, it's hard. Like, stopping and praying every night and through the day is hard. Like, listening to Christian music and edify myself, Lord, it's hard. We just throw these holy fits, don't we? But it's so hard, Lord. Why is it so hard? Taking time to slow down and memorize verses, that's so hard. Like, why can't I just, like, sleep on a book and know it? <laughs> but we want to remember that the reward that we receive is greater than a, a trophy or a reef that perishes and that fades. The reward that we receive as we pursue Christ is that we get to know him more intimately and we get to know the, the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of his love. The reward is that these mysteries that were hidden in ages before we learn about and we get to delight in other people created in his image. The, the reward is that he begins to allow his spirit to bubble up in us like, like, like water and we begin to pour out and share with others and see people come to faith. The reward is knowing that one day we will see him face to face and he will say good and faithful servant well done. The reward is that we get to have a joy that is unexplainable, a joy that is not temporal but eternal, a joy that causes people who don't know Jesus to say, how in the world are you still laughing? How in the world are you still standing? How in the world are you still moving forward when, when you don't have much and you can say, oh, but if only you knew I have more. 
than anyone else in this world. I have every spiritual blessing in the, high, in the heavenly places. I have everything I need for life and godliness. I have an eternal reward and a place reserved for me in heaven where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. And I have a family of God that loves me and that's in it with me. That woman, Floris Chadwick, who fell short because of the fog, two months later, she tried again. And the fog was just as dense, but this time she kept going. And her time in reaching the shore was 13 hours and 47 minutes, and she broke a 27-year-old record by more than two hours, becoming the first woman ever to complete the swim. And how did she break that record? She broke it because she didn't allow her past failures to stop her. She got back in the water, and she knew that the shoreline was there. In the same way, you may have come in here discouraged, saying, you know what, I'm kind of giving up, I'm weak, and I just want to encourage you, do not be weary in well-doing. But you shall receive your reward if you do not faint. Get back in the boat. Get back in the boat once you reach the sore. Get back in the water, remembering that you have a father who loves you. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he broke it before the disciples in the same way he took a cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As Christians, we take a meal called communion to remind ourselves of of Jesus, to remind ourselves of the self-control that he had in allowing his body to be broken, his blood to be shed so that we could come into relationship with the Father. And every Sunday we gather around this meal to remind ourselves of, of his faithfulness towards us. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine, or juice, the wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to ask you not to partake in this meal, as this is a meal specifically for Christians that we take to remind ourselves of of what Christ has done. But perhaps you're sitting in your seat and you're wondering, you're asking yourself the question that Pilate was asking yourself, what shall I do with this Jesus? You ask yourself, what should I do with this Jesus who makes this claim that he is God and that he is, that going through him is the only way to God? What do I do with this, this claim? And I want to encourage you today in your heart to crown Jesus as king by agreeing with what the Bible says about you, that you sin, that you are a sinner, and that the wages of sin is death, is eternal separation from God. But the God of this universe, that he, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Jesus stood in the place that you deserve to stand before God condemned, and that he bore God's wrath, and that those who place their faith and trust in Jesus can become a part of his family and forgiven of their sins. Crown Jesus Lord. Crowning Jesus Lord does not mean that you need to get yourself together before you come to him. 
No, Jesus is the ultimate trainer. He's saying, come to me just like you are out of shape and broken. And let me, let me show you how to delight in me so that you can be trained in godliness. Those of you who had the front half of the room come to the front. Those in the back half of the room, you go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.